If you have your Bible, uh, if you could please open up to the book of First Timothy. <clears throat> we are finally in the home stretch of the book. We have made it to chapter six. We'll go through uh, verses one through ten tonight. Kind of a brief recap of where we've been at in First Timothy. We've seen that First Timothy really is a book. It's written to a pastor. It's written by Paul to Timothy as a pastor of the church. But specifically, it is calling the church to stand for and defend the truth. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so God equips the church to be able to carry out that call. That's Timothy's job as a pastor is to help the church to do so by protecting the doctrine and devotion in the church. But the church takes an active role in that also. It's not just on the shoulders of, of a single man as a pastor. The church actively joins in and helps. And there's two offices we looked at. It's overseer and deacon in chapter 3. And these are godly qualified men who help serve the church in various ways. Meanwhile, Timothy devotes himself to the public reading, exhortation, and teaching of the scriptures. So after all these things, we moved into chapter 5, and we saw the instruction to Timothy and the church in general on how to speak to one another, how to care for one another like a family. We looked at the instructions to the widows. We looked at how to treat the elders in the church. We looked at practical instructions on ordination process and taking your time so that things can come to the surface that might not really be readily available or observable at the beginning. So this week, as we kind of approach the end of the letter here, um, we're going to go through verses through verse 10, verses 1 through 10, and uh, we will wrap it up in the next one or two weeks, uh, depending on how that goes. And then at the beginning of next year, this will kind of feed into our um, next series that we're going to do. We're not going to go through a book of the Bible next. We're going to do a topical series on spiritual disciplines. There's a verse, uh, it was First uh, Timothy 4, 6, and uh, it says... Um, I'm sorry, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. So this study on the spiritual disciplines is going to feed that. We want to discipline ourselves for godliness. Well, that requires training, and and I don't want to get too much into it now, but we'll get there um, at the beginning of next year. So I'm excited to do that. Um, I'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 10, and then uh, we'll dive into this passage. So 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So we're starting in verses 1 through 2 here. It kind of wraps up a paragraph that we started last week, and it's talking about bond servants. This word bond servant, uh, in your translation it may be different. If you see bond servant or slave or servant, they're almost always the exact same word in the Greek, and it's the word doulos. And most of your translations will probably have a footnote on this. And sometimes scholars debate on how to translate the word. Because in our language, when we think of the word slave, it's not how they use that word in their language. When we think of slave or slavery, we think about the horrific things that happened in our country many years ago. But that's not how they use the word slave here, and that's not how they functioned back in these times. A slave was someone who owed a debt, and they would basically give themselves to a life of servitude for a determined amount of time as that person's slave until their debt was paid off. So sometimes you were born into that and you would work your way to freedom. Sometimes you obligated yourself to that based on your decision. And then you could even decide after serving your period of time, you could decide, I want to remain a slave in your household. And you could agree to do that as well. So they kind of struggle with how to translate that. But for the sake of our conversation, that's how we need to understand this word. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves, bond servants, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So the reason I bring all this up is we may be tempted to look at this and think, okay, well, this didn't really apply to me because I'm not a slave, so let's get past this and get to something that that does apply. But before we just kind of brush this off and think it doesn't apply to us, I want to share a verse with you. Proverbs 22, 7 says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave of the lender. So if you've ever taken a Dave Ramsey course, Or if you've taken another Christian financial course, you probably have heard this verse before. It's used basically to say we shouldn't make ourselves, when we borrow money, we shouldn't make ourselves slaves to lenders. We should seek to save up cash and pay for something outright instead of having to do those things. So that may be a little bit familiar, but the idea here, the borrower is slave to the lender, reveals something a little bit about the nature of slavery. I think that all of us, And scripturally, I think this is true, too. All of us are enslaved to something. If you want to look at this on a spiritual level, we are all before Christ slaves of sin. It's in Romans. And we are all after Christ slaves of God. But I think it goes beyond that as well to things in our lives that we are enslaved to. Think about your job. Technically, we are enslaved to our employer whenever we are on the clock. Our boss determines what we're going to do. We have made a commitment to serve in a certain way. So that would be similar to this use of the word slave and master. We are making a commitment to someone to do something. So the passage talks about how should we submit to our masters in those things. Though we might not be slaves in the way that we might think of the word slave, this applies to us today in our job, in our marriages. Kind of funny, but kind of serious. Loans, mortgages, volunteering in various capacities. There's always going to be someone that is over us in some form or fashion. And I think this verse applies to all of those scenarios. So what does it say? It says, regard your own masters as worthy of all honor. What does that mean? What does it mean to honor, to 
um, regard them as worthy of honor. I'm going to read a few verses because this topic comes up repeatedly in Scripture. And this isn't every time it comes up, but this gets the point across. 1 Peter 2.18 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Ephesians 6.5, Bondservants, obey your earthly master with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Titus 2.9, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. So to honor those in charge over you is to submit and obey with a sincere respect towards them from the heart. This is difficult to do, especially in our country, in our culture of this. We already have this built within us to want to defy authority because of our red-blooded Americanness in us. And if you grew up in a household like me where sarcasm ran rampant, that's how I typically want to respond to someone when they give me something that I think is unreasonable. That sarcasm wants to jump out. What these passages tell me is that I need to, with a sincere heart, not as a people pleaser or as a way of eye service, but sincerely from the heart, obey and respect those over me in everything that we do in order to adorn the doctrine of Christ. And we see the same idea here in this passage. If you keep reading... It says, let all who are under a yoke of, as bondservants regard their masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So the actions of the slave are to be a certain way because it says something about their faith. In the same way, the way that you respond to people who are over you says something to them about your faith. Our evangelism doesn't just happen when we say to someone, do you know about Jesus? Let me tell you about Jesus. That is necessary for evangelism. But don't look over the fact that Paul told Timothy to watch over his teaching, but to also watch over his life. Whenever we are engaging with people out in our jobs or family members or even in your marriage, in our family relationships, people are learning about what you believe by what you do. And the slaves who were submitting to their masters, they think, okay, well, I'm in Christ. I'm not even really shouldn't even be a slave. Like, I'm free. And they were rebelling, and Paul jumps in and says, well, whatever condition you're in when you were saved, you should stay there. If you can earn your freedom, do it. Terrific. But if not, you should be a Christian light in that example. And that's the idea here. It's the same with us. Our works will adorn our faith. It will make our faith pleasing and beautiful when people look at us. And they will think, what is it about this guy that he is always so polite to people? What is it about this lady that she always is so considerate of everybody? Some it will get on their nerves because I think it pricks it their own insufficiency in those things. But to others, they will look at that and think, there's something about this. And they will hit a moment of crisis, and you know who they're probably going to come to? They will probably come to you. 
That's what my brother did a long, long time ago. I prayed for him all the time. And I knew he wasn't a believer. He made a decision at church once, but based on his actions, I just knew that wasn't the case. And he knew it too. And one day, he finally came to me. And he said, hey, Gary, I need to talk to you about something. And I would like to think that he did that because I was a good Christian example all the time. I know that I wasn't. But I talked to him about it later, and he said, well, it just seemed like, you know, you always had something to say from the Bible, and I really just wanted to know what the Bible had to say about it. So people are paying attention to those things, whether you realize it or not. And when that moment of crisis hits, they're going to look at your life, and they're going to say, well, Tom is always so reasonable and respectful. I think I'm going to go to him. Or they're going to say, I don't want to talk to that person. They're always rude to me. So that's kind of the point behind this instruction here. So Paul brings up another scenario. What if the master is a, another believer? Okay. So we're both Christians. So you can't treat me like a worthless slave because we're both brothers in Christ is kind of the scenario. And Paul says, no, you ought to even more so submit to them because they're your brothers and sisters. So he kind of moves on from this, goes into verses three through five. He says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. He starts and says, teach and urge these things, which should kind of perk our ears up. Something important is fixing to be said. And he gives a warning against false teaching and false doctrine. We've already kind of looked at this a little bit. What I want to focus on here is how it describes the doctrine. It says, does not disagree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. The word for sound here can also be translated healthy. It's not like an audible sound. It's like a firm sound. And it's the same word that we get our English word hygiene from. So it's almost saying this person does not agree with the hygienic words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The healthy words. So bad teaching is unhealthy teaching. And unhealthy teaching corrupts our godliness. Do you see that in the verse there? If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound or healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching, still describing the same teaching, that accords with godliness. Those are one and the same. Healthy teaching should lead to godliness. Unhealthy teaching will lead away from it. That's the warning here. So the goal in all of this is godliness. It's not good teaching for entertainment's sake. It's not in order to attract. It's not to create an elite group of scholarly theologians. The goal of all good teaching is godliness. I was reading a book by... I'm going to probably butcher this last name. It's a book on prayer by John Onwuchekwa. And early in the book, he spends a lot of time defining prayer. And he makes a statement that I think is really good. He says, 
The reason I need to define this rightly is because misinterpretation leads to misapplication. The point that he's making is if we understand it wrong, we will apply it wrong. If you want to pray right, we want to pray well, we need to properly understand what it is. And he gives an analogy. He tells a joke, but he says, have you heard the story about a man that bought a $10,000 parrot that could speak multiple languages and sing hymns and gave it to his mom as a gift? And so some time passes. He doesn't hear from her. And he gets back in touch with her and says, hey, did you receive the gift? She said, yeah. And he said, did you like it? And she said, oh, it was great. He said, oh, well, good. What was your favorite part? And she said, the thighs. They were delicious. (laughs) Misinterpretation (laughs) leads to misapplication. And I think it's the same thing here with our teaching sometimes. The bird wasn't intended to make her full. That, That is not the intention of that, though that's what she did. It was intended for something else. Sermons and Sunday school lessons and Bible studies aren't intended to make us full or to hit the spot. That's not the purpose. The purpose is godliness. And if we get that backwards, it will lead to what we see spelled out after this. When it doesn't produce godliness, it produces Controversy, quarrels about words, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction. And we might be tempted at this point to look at all this and say, well, this is the result of the teaching. This is when the teacher goes wrong is when all this happens. But keep looking. Keep looking here. In verse 5, it finishes the list. And constant friction among people... Who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. So when the teacher is unhealthy, he promotes unhealthy controversy. Likewise, when the listeners are unhealthy, they promote unhealthy controversy. In both cases, the controversy produces ungodly action among those who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. So this happens in two ways. It happens when there is bad teaching that is causing this, but then it happens when those who are deprived of the truth, they're depraved in the mind, they don't have the truth, they can't reason it out, and they produce these quarrels and this unhealthy living as well. And this is why we've seen so many times there's pressure on both the teacher And the church, when the Bible commands us to protect the doctrine of the church, he's not always talking to pastors. They're talking to congregation members. They're talking to just regular church people. That's all of us. We all have a responsibility to keep charge of those things. The church monitors the teaching to make sure it accords with godliness. And then the church is to pursue that godliness according to the teaching. And as a pastor, Timothy is especially responsible for checking and making sure those things are happening. So moving into verses 6 through 10, it kind of finishes up in verse 5, talking about these people that are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth. Uh, They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. 
But godliness, verse 6, with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the little phrase at the end of verse 5 there, these people imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Remember, we looked at this earlier, godliness is the goal. Godliness is what we are aiming for. But there are some who treat godliness as a means. That means it's a tool that I can use to get what I really want to accomplish. It's a way for manipulation might be one way to say it. But we know that godliness is not some kind of means to some other gain. Look in verse 6. Godliness is the gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. But there's a really important word. It's not here in the verse. The word is if. Godliness is gain if we are content with it. Look at the verse. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So the godliness is not intended to produce something for us. That's what we're aiming for. But it only accomplishes that if we are content with godliness alone. Why did Paul add that? He's trying to fight against our human tendency to use godliness to gain something. If he just says godliness is great gain, we might think, okay, well, godliness is great financial gain. And godliness gives me great reputational gain. Yes, I made that word up. It's okay. Godliness is... A bestowal of blessing gain. I can be godly for all of these different gains. Look how great godliness is. But if we treat godliness that way, godliness is not our goal. We don't desire to be godly. We desire the effects of being godly. And that's not what he wants us to desire. He wants us to desire the godliness. This temptation is inherent in all of us. I see it most readily in my children. When they want to ask me for something that they know I'm going to say no to, suddenly they pull out all the stops. Hey, Dad, you want a back scratch? Kristen gives really good back scratches. I'm like, oh, thanks. You give me a back scratch. Hey, by the way, hey, can we watch this show tonight? <laughs> so you're not just being nice. You, you just want to watch a show. This is the danger here with godliness, that we might be respectful and kind so that we're well thought of because that's our real desire. We, we might be respectful and kind Because it's really going to help me to get ahead in this job and I'll be able to make a little bit more money. That does not do your faith any service. People will see right through that. And they will know that it's not godliness that's enticing you. It's the things that you're pursuing. What Paul is saying here is being content with godliness alone is great gain. It's godliness just for godliness sake. It's enticing you towards that. It's not because life's going to go smoother or because it's going to fix problems in your life or it's going to give you future success. It's because it makes me more like my Savior, Jesus Christ. 
That's the enticement for Christians. We came into the world with nothing, the next verse says. We can't take anything with us. But if you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, it says, Train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So this godliness that we're pursuing, I don't take my physical things with me, but the godliness that I'm developing now has benefit in the life to come. All this is not to say that godliness will never benefit us. Of course it's going to benefit you. Of course you're going to get promoted because you are a more well-rounded employee than the other employees. Because of your Christian convictions. Of course all those things are true. The book of Proverbs is littered with examples of this. The hand of the diligent makes rich. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. A man who is kind benefits himself. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. The righteous will flourish like a green leaf. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? All of these came from just two chapters in the book of Proverbs. It's everywhere in there. Yes, godliness is going to give you gain. The problem is when something other than godliness is what entices us towards godliness. Because there's going to come a situation where godliness doesn't get you what you want. And you know what you're going to be tempted to do? Something else. You're going to be tempted to swerve away. That's the warning. If you keep reading here, that's what happens when it talks about the love of money. Godliness should be what entices us and draws us to teaching that accords with godliness and draws us to apply it. But when godliness doesn't entice us, look at verses 9 and 10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. When money is our goal, when that's the end that we are pursuing, you'll be surprised how quickly you will compromise your godliness when it's not giving you what you want. When the end goal seems elusive, you will abandon whatever technique is not working and you will revert to something else. I talked to a student. This was a long time ago, I guess. Now I'm starting to get a little bit old somewhat. This was probably seven years ago. He had just graduated and he was involved with some drugs and some different things and was hopping around different jobs. But he would still come to church. And he would still want to be involved in some of these things. And I said, praise God. And so he would come to my office and we would talk maybe once a week about different things. And he had some kind of moral dilemma. I don't remember what it was. I don't remember the actual thing. But I remember a scenario that he brought up. He said, Garrett, I know that stealing is wrong. He said, but if I'm in a situation where I'm starving and I've got to steal to live, wouldn't I want to do that? And he used this to justify something else completely different. But in his mind, he's starting to unpack. And so I started asking questions. I'm like, okay, so in this scenario, you know, do you have a job? Are you doing – because the, the issue of the matter was he was not in the situation he was painting. He had a job. 
he had a lot of money. It was a money management issue. Didn't manage his money well, so he felt like he had to resort to some other things. And so I said, well, in this scenario, do you have a job like you do now? He's like, well, okay, yeah. Okay, and so I'm trying to paint this for him. But he completely looks past everything because he's got a different end goal in mind. The end goal wasn't godliness. It was a full stomach. It was pleasurable experiences that I want to have that I can't afford right now, so I'm going to force that. And once the means, the ends, justifies the means, you'll be surprised what you're not willing to do in order to get that. We see it in our country with people who think, okay, I know the end goal of where our country needs to be, so how we get there, it's okay if we are deceptive and we cut corners and we deceive some people along the way because the end goal makes it worth it. The Christian says the ends does not justify the means. My end is godliness. That's what I'm enticed with and that's what I'm pursuing. So when we get to these verses here, the desire to be rich, when money is not our goal, it's not the ends that we're pursuing, we will abandon those things and we will begin to face temptation. And this is it's this way with any goal outside of godliness. Think about it. If godliness is our goal, the only thing I'll ever be tempted to do is to be godly. But when anything else takes that goal, money in this example, well, suddenly I'm tempted to do things in order to get that money that might not line up with godliness. If we are secretly enticed by anything else, that is what you're going to be tempted to achieve, whether it's through godliness or something else. And that's why it says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not the money that's evil. It's the love of it. I've got to have this. And it's a root that branches out and that will cause us to do any number of evil things to get it. And it's not just money. We can place a lot of things in that blank there, and that applies. So this is the warning for Christians. Don't set those things as your goal. Be content with nothing but godliness. If you can be content with that, that will automatically line your life up surprisingly well with what the Scriptures command us to have anyway. There's a verse in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. I'm actually going to turn over and read that real quick. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Here's what it says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are zealous for good works. God sent Jesus to die for us. And to save us from our sin so that we can be godly. That's what he desires for us. He made us in his image. He desires for us to be image bearers of him. But sin corrupts that image. And through the cross, God is correcting that image in us. So the instruction for us is to renounce ungodliness. Godliness 
in us is God's goal for us in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So we renounce our sin that we might look more like our Savior. And in doing so, outsiders, our masters, those who are over us, they will look at the godliness in our lives and it will adorn the doctrine, adorn the teaching. And they will say, you know what? There's got to be something to this. This person has nothing to gain whenever I am rude to them week after week and they just respond to me with kindness. They have nothing to gain. What's their end goal? What's their motive? When they see you have no other motive other than I love Jesus, that's going to speak to them. So that's what we do. We honor one another. We avoid controversies and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction. We learn to be content with godliness alone simply for the sake of godliness and looking more like Christ. Let's pray. God, we hear your word loud and clear. We hear the importance of godliness, how godliness with contentment can be great gain. When we are pursuing and drawn and enticed by godliness above all other things, when we're content with nothing other than pursuing you and living according to your word, Father, we understand that that is great gain, that we will feel complete. But if I'm honest, Father, sometimes there are other competing desires that try to distract my vision, my focus, that try to entice me away from godliness, entice me away from obedience. Father, I pray that you would weed these things out of us that are drawing our affections away from you. Whether it's the love of money that is producing a root of all kinds of evil in our lives. Whether it's a love for other things above you. We want to be image bearers who listen to sound, healthy teaching. Who are not depraved in our minds or deprived of the truth. But who take this good teaching and apply it to our lives so that we can train ourselves for godliness. Would you make us into a more godly people? Would you cause us to shine in such a way that it's evident to everyone that we are different, not because of anything in us, but because of what you have done for us through the gospel? God, make us into a gospel people who are zealous for good works. Protect us from dissension, from quarrels about words, from grumbling from any kind of negative attitude towards one another in these things. Give us a thirst and a hunger and a desire for godliness. We love you and we thank you for your son Jesus, that you've sent him to die in our place to redeem us from our sin. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.